0: As we stand, can we bow our heads to pray? Lord God, it is the mystery of the universe that you should welcome people like us. And we ask that as we consider your word here today, we might understand more of your purposes for those, us, you have rescued. Our purposes in the universe And our purposes together as your church through whom you work. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Do please sit down. Let me add my own welcome to uh, that from Jonathan. Uh, To those of you who, especially perhaps today or uh, because it's half term, may be new or visitors, you're particularly welcome. Some of you will have sisters and brothers. And you may remember that when you complained that your brother got more than I did, your mum or dad said about the cake, "Okay, next time you cut, he can choose. Never was a knife put in more precisely than on that occasion. Would you please find Ephesians chapter 4? It's uh, page 1175. And many of you, I trust, uh, were here last week might be uh, less than most because of half-term, um, when Jonathan preached on the first part of that chapter, verses 1 to 6, and today, uh, chapter, verses 7 to 10, full to be considered. But it matters sometimes how we split things up, whether it's cake or bits of Scripture. Verse 7 begins, but to each one of us. The beginning of the chapter has been full of the great ones of Ephesians. One Lord, one faith, and so on. Keep that unity, says Paul. But to each one, he says in verse 7, and then uh, this is about gifts and our diversity. And so very easily we put the knife in after verse 6 and before verse 7. Up to that point, it's unity, it's Jonathan. After that, diversity, that's Alan. And I suggest that that's wrong. I suggest that those of us who've been Christians for a while may be so concerned to rush to the bit in this passage that's about the individual gifts and kind of compile our list alongside Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Peter 4. That we neglect the reality that it is actually still about the unity of the church of God. It's why we've called the whole series the one show. If you want to put in a knife, then I suggest you try between verses 16 and 17, at which point Paul points to the Gentiles outside the church as those who are separated from God. And I suggest that on this occasion, often it doesn't, but on this occasion it matters because we mustn't neglect this, that the gifts on which we put so much weight are there, according to verse 13, until we reach unity. Unity remains the absolute focus. There's no way we're to turn from those nice words in verses 1 to 6 and think, oh good, now we've got to the bit that really concerns me because it tells me about my gifts. When the British codebreakers at Bletchley Park wrote to Winston Churchill in 1941, they were desperate at their lack of funds to carry on the work. And they pleaded with him to release resources to fund more codebreaking. Churchill's strategic brain had grasped a while back the urgent importance of their work and he replied immediately and he headed his memo action this day and that's what lies behind the phrase that uh, lies in verse 3 make every effort elsewhere <clears throat> that verb is associated with zeal with eagerness with quickness, with wasting no time. So keeping the unity of the Spirit, verse 3, in the bond of peace, as Jonathan said last week, is not a nice idea for another time. It is a matter of the most urgent action today for each of us. We may find ourselves saying, but look, you know, the church makes a lot of fuss about unity. We hear of meetings and we hear of services, makes a lot of fuss about unity, but no one really cares. And yet when you and I are at odds with each other, then the world does care. I've told the story before, but I think it bears repeating. Of A football match I watched uh, last summer Uh, between two teams, each of which bore the name of Christ. I happened to know people in one of the teams. I knew they they were Christians. I also knew that in the nature of this can happen sometimes, that uh, the other team had no Christians in it, though the manager was a Christian. At one point, uh, blows were thrown after an incident on the pitch. And in the blink of an eye, a man appeared from behind me who ran the bar at the uh, ground on which this was being held. It was just a random ground. And he said typical. You can tell it's church teams. They may not notice unity, but boy, do they notice when we break it. Unity matters. And that's the purpose of verses 7 through to to 16. How do we keep unity? Why does it matter that we should? What is the result of our keeping unity? Yes, we may make every effort, but I don't know what it's like for you. If I am to get into action this day, I need to know why and how. And so we begin that section that we had read. And as we begin it, can we perhaps begin with a little honesty? Look at that page. When our Bibles insert a little bit of Old Testament quotation, like in verse 8, And perhaps some explanation, often in brackets, like verses 9 and 10. Can we be honest and admit that our eyes rather glaze over? We skip to the next bit, don't we? We're not very interested, really, in an illustration from some obscure bit of the Old Testament. It's understandable. But it's not a good idea. Later on in this section, Paul is going to need to make it clear how the church, working in unity, exercises the ministry of Jesus Christ himself across the whole universe. And so it's important that he establishes here, first of all, that the giver of the gifts is this same Jesus. And Paul knows no better way of establishing something than by going to his Old Testament and by reaching in, grabbing something to his purpose, and saying, you see... If you had millions of people to give a gift to, your mind would freeze up, wouldn't it? You'd end up giving each one person the same small gift, wouldn't you? I mean, a gift of Lego is not a bad thing, but it's not really what we're talking about. But the mind of Christ is able to work differently. There's no gift we exercise in which he himself doesn't have the supreme holding. He was the prophet, priest, and king. He was the one with words of knowledge, insight, and wisdom, the one who could discern spirits and help his neighbor, who could lead and guide and shepherd. Yet such is his fullness that when he gives gifts to his church, He can give the gifts he exercised himself, and each one will still be different. And so a bag of jigsaw pieces is a much better analogy. And these verses, over which our eyes may glaze, are there simply to emphasize this one thing, that the giver is Jesus Christ, verse 7. Grace is given according to the giving that Christ gives. That's where the emphasis falls. And then this quotation, Psalm 68 was used in Jewish tradition as a song of praise to call on God. They looked back to the great victories that God had had at Sinai. We sang about uh, some of that period in our last hymn. And then they called on God to take up his place on high. They took that story from those histories and they said, now, God, you are enthroned on the mountain of Zion among your people. So it was used in early temple worship. That's what you did uh, when you conquered the peoples. Now set up your throne on Zion's hill, on high, at the center of your people. And just as you did when the rebels were crushed and the booty from those rebels became your own loot for handing out to your people in the desert, as it was in the history, so let it be now as you ascend on high to the glory of your people. Make it so that we are conquerors and you can give gifts to your people. That's the context of that quotation. But Paul can now take it and say, listen, this is now fulfilled. Christ has ascended. Christ has established his rule. And from all that is his now, and that's everything, he hands out his gifts. And then verses 8 to 10 explain it. Yes, this psalm was about God. But in truth, we now know, says Paul, the one who did indeed ascend. It's the same one as the one who descended to share our life and even our death before ascending again to fill the whole universe. Paul wants us to get this, that what the Old Testament knew of God is now made known to us in Jesus Christ himself so that Christ has become the giver of gifts In Jeremiah, the prophet, through Jeremiah, God had said, do I not fill heaven and earth? It doesn't mean I'm very, very big. It means that there is nowhere outside my domain. I rule the lot of it. And so Paul is taking all of this and recognizing that the God who fills heaven and earth is now made known to us in this Christ who fills the whole universe. End of verse 10. Such is his rule. He descended and he died. He faced for us the death that would otherwise have overwhelmed us. Because of our separation from God. And he rose and ascended to make clear his victory over all death. And so there can be nothing outside his domain. And if we rush to verse 11, because we find these bits from the Old Testament a bit boring, then we will miss what matters to Paul that these are the gifts of the ascended Christ, given to fulfill the purposes of the ascended Christ, which is rule. Rule through service, but still rule. And it's only with that in our bag, as it were, that we can go on now to face verses 11 through to 13. He it is, it was he, who gave the gift of some people to his church. Now, in other places, we're used to talking about spiritual gifts. These are the gifts of Christ, by the way. They're not, according to this, the gifts of the Spirit. don't suppose God matters matters very much to God, but let's be aware that the gifts of the Spirit are the gifts of Christ. And they are not gifts to people. It's not that I give to Haley a gift of music. It is that I I give... Uh, to the church, the gift of Haley the musician. These are people who are gifts. And they're a particular segment of gift people, actually not musicians. They are the word ministers, apostles, those who start things, though Paul probably meant those who started the church once and for all. Prophets, those who speak a word from God though Paul probably meant those who'd spoken before the word was in written form. And then evangelists and pastors and teachers, those who continue to speak the word so that the church is extended and guided and taught. They're not more important gifts, but they are the ones that are relevant to Paul's argument, as he's going to develop it in a moment. So for the moment, just to think back to our our jigsaw. You know those bits of the jigsaw where I guess everyone does jigsaws differently, but after I've got the frame together, I kind of grab all the blue bits of sky and, and, and try and get all those bits together. You clump things and, and try and do them rather than do everything randomly. So think of these particular people as they're named as just a segment, just a limb of the body, just the sky of the jigsaw. What is it that these people do? According to Paul, they prepare God's people for the works of service. Work, again. Effort, again. Service, unity, again. So that the body of Christ may be built up, and according to Paul, that will look like three things. Firstly, well, the three things, unity in faith and in knowledge, maturity, and fullness of Christ. So this, just keep coming back to it, is what that making every effort, that action this day, that's what it's all for, these three things. We're going to hear in a moment that these word ministers are given to the church to keep it on the track of truth, so that the people of the church serve one another. And these three things are achieved. Firstly, unity of faith and knowledge. Quite a few times in Ephesians when Paul gets carried away with enthusiasm. And we get a statement of what Christ has already done, followed by an indication that it still lies ahead. So in verse 3, the unity of the Spirit has been given already. We're to keep it. But here, now, in verse 13, we are to achieve it. But that's exactly right. Something's already happened, but, something, but it still lies ahead. It sounds odd. But that's exactly what has happened. Christ, in living and dying and rising, has done absolutely every last thing that was required. Nothing remains to be done except this, that the stone that was thrown into the water still has ripples that haven't reached the edge. Or if you're a cosmologist, and I know most of you are, uh, think of it uh, like this, as being like the speed of light. An event has happened on earth, But more than 2,000 light years away, it hasn't yet reached the furthest parts of the galaxy. And some of those distant stars may be easier for God's rule to reach than the heart that sits next to yours tomorrow. There is a now, it has happened. And there is a not yet, it still has to happen for many. But as service builds up the body, so we move from the unity that has been established towards the unity that is not yet established. We discover a unity in the content of faith and in knowledge of a salvation that has as its core the Son of God, this Jesus who died to serve us and ascended to be our Lord. And secondly, this body is mature. Not like the infants we're going to come to in a minute, but grown up and robust and wise. And then thirdly, still in verse 13, this body is measured by nothing less than Christ's own full stature. Now, again, there's a now in chapter 1, verse 23. We were told that Christ's body is already his fullness. But there's a not yet to grow into. The corporate Christ, his church, cannot settle with falling short of the stature of the personal Christ, the Lord, the glorified Jesus. Well, it feels to me like I've kept saying there's a bit coming, or it'll make sense in a minute. But in verses 14 to 16, that's what we get to. We can't know what particular dangers faced the church. But there was false teaching about, which is why he focused on the word ministers earlier on. And that leads to people being kept like infants, which is why he focused on maturity. And it feels like being tossed back and forth, which is why he focused on a stable building. And this is by the wickedness of men, according to verse 14. Men in their separated plurality, while the words behind verse 13 speak of a single mature man. Whatever the danger was, it led to instability, while the Church of Christ is about united stability and fitting together. Just to go back to uh, Lego for a moment. I guess we've all done this if we've had Lego or anything like it. You, You know how to build a wall with Lego. But like a real bricky, you put one brick and the, the, la- the bonds, the layers have to be uh, moved aside so that they fit and develop strength. And just as experiment, you've probably also done what I used to do, is that you put one four on top of another four on top of another four on top of another four. Then next to it, another four. So it looks pretty much the same. But a breeze or the lightest touch will knock it over because the wall is not bonded. That's what the church of Christ is like, a wall bonded in its bricks. Verse 15. Truth is to be spoken and love is to be exercised. It's a terrible thing when we say this is a balance. Well, Of course, it's a balance, isn't it? No, it isn't. As though you could only have so much love if you sit a little lightly to truth. Or you can only be truthful if you're a little less than perfectly loving. Jesus was perfect truth in perfect love. And that's to be us. Now most of us find one side of that easier than the other. I certainly do. But the church is established in a way that tends towards this outcome. For all the terrible faults of any church, it is set up to come closer than any merely human organization, to truth and love together. And that way, we grow up into our head, Jesus, from whom the whole body builds itself up. There at the end of this passage, it might be that we've come to start thinking of this talk of the body, meaning we're somehow separated from Jesus. As though Jesus is up there And we're left to get on with somehow building his body, which is just a kind of metaphor for for what's going on in this thing, the church. It's not that way at all. And if we thought it, verse 15 comes back very loudly uh, to say, no, no, he remains most intimately connected as the head to this, his body. John 15, Jesus says, remain in me and I will remain in you. And then finally in verse 16 we reach the end and there is this promise that the body grows as each part does its work. And it may be that in this passage only word ministers are identified but that's because Paul was concerned that there should be truth to withstand the lies coming from elsewhere. But this now, this finally, is the evidence that his horizon is the whole church and not just these word ministers. He's spoken before of the whole body and how, of, how we are all to reach unity. But here he couldn't be clearer. Each part is to do its work. And that is work that demands action this day. And that's where we leave it till next Sunday. But let me try to apply it as we finish. You are a part of this body. Jill stood up to be baptized today. Not because until then we thought that, no, Jill Thompson, eh? Not because it wasn't real for her before then. Because that was the moment that she wanted to say, yes, I stand with everyone else who can make these confessions I turn to Christ, I submit to Christ, I come to Christ. Jill wanted to have that uh, conviction ahead of the confirmation that will come. And for all who've made that adult profession of faith, there is that confidence that we are a part of this body. Let me tell you about Jemima. I don't think she's here today. She's probably just as well. There was a note on the um, SITSVAC page that we put out a few weeks ago about taking over the running of the coffee rota. It means making sure uh, all things run sweetly and that gaps are covered. And Jemima came to me with Beth Shalhoub and said, can me and Beth run the coffee? The grammar wasn't up to much, but the thought was fantastic. And I said, yes, Jemima and Beth are 11 years old. And as of last week, they're serving. They're running the coffee rota. None is too young. None can say that they have retired from service. None can say they are ungifted if Jesus Christ is the giver. There is none who cannot love, none who cannot speak the truth in love. The church of God is not those word ministers, but each part, each one of all of us. And each part is to do its work. If you don't know your gifting, then find out, please. We'll run another network course next year. But what would this church, just this church, be if every single part, every single one of us took all the action necessary this day and tomorrow and the day after and lived by verses 1 to 16 of chapter 4 of Ephesians? How stable! How mighty, how loving, how true, how mature, how united, how praiseful, how powerful, how effective in reaching the world. And then in the days that followed, what would follow? That the Christ who is Lord would be known as the God who fills heaven and earth. And would make himself known through his body, which is his fullness. And that, my brother or my sister, is your destiny. Lord, we gather with all kinds of individual maturity. We gather with different awareness of our gifting. We gather with different distractions in our lives. I suspect most of us gather thinking that something else is much more important than the unity of the body of Christ that it's a nice add-on if it can be managed, but some other ministry is much more vital. Give us the grace we know we need to make every effort to take action this day so that Christ's body may be built up and the witness of a united church may blaze forth the glory of Christ in an unbelieving world. Amen.